Listeners, it's Sam here again, and just the usual shout out for our brilliant sponsors before this week's show. Paces Ahead have courses for the start of 2024, and listeners, here's a possible sweetener for you. I will be there at their first course of 2024. That's the 16th to the 19th of January. Please do come along and say hi if you catch me. It would be great to meet some of you if you're there. But there is also a course the following week from the 20th to the 23rd of January for those of you sitting in the first diet of 2024. Not only that, but they also have courses lined up for May as well. The 20th to the 23rd of May and the 28th to the 31st of May. I highly recommend booking on early to avoid disappointment. They very regularly get oversubscribed. If you can't make a course though, past tests have got you covered with their market-leading online revision paces resource. I think most pacer sitters would agree this is more or less essential to have to complement your ward-based preparation. So to get access, just click any of the links in the show notes labelled past test. But enough on that for now, let's get started on this week's episode. Welcome to the Pre-Paces Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Sam Williams, and today we welcome another returning guest in the form of geriatrician and strength physician at Southmead Hospital in Bristol, Dr. Paul Sellers, comes back to discuss another Being a MedReg episode where we discuss calling the stroke consultant out of hours. Paul was so generous with his time that we've had to split this again into another double header episode. So in this first episode, we cover the basics of stroke nomenclature and physiology before then tackling everything thrombolysis, including indications, NIHSS scoring, contraindications, wake-up strokes, and blood pressure and glucose control in stroke. And it must be results season because we have had a deluge of donations on the Buy Me A Coffee page. I am so grateful to those of you who have donated. So thank you to Rachel Miller and Nick, who both passed first time. Thank you so much to Joe, who donated, but also sent a really kind follow-up email. So thank you for that, Joe. Thank you as well to Eugene for your donation. And finally, thank you to Marianne, who sent an email of thanks for helping her, not with PACES, but with her Australian exams, which are very similar to PACES, which she has been sitting down under. I'm always so grateful to you all for your fantastic support. So thank you so much. Now, without further ado, let's get into this episode with Dr. Paul Sellers. Welcome to the Pre-Paces podcast and welcome again to another one of our Being a MedReg episodes. These are the episodes which aim to set you up for success as the medical reg on call, out of hours or at weekends. This week we're covering a topic that will daunt many of you out of hours and I can tell you it certainly daunts me when I'm working as the MedReg and that is calling the stroke team. And to join us, I'm delighted to welcome back a returning guest, Stroke Medicine Consultant at Southmead Hospital in Bristol and Metallica Superfan, Dr. <laughs> Paul Sellers, is joining us again on the show. So, Paul, welcome back. Thank you very much, Sam. It's a pleasure to be back. And, Paul, we're going to get down to brass tacks. We're going to talk through some of the more difficult decisions that our listeners may be expected to make as the medical reg on call. And unless they're working at a tertiary centre, they probably won't have a dedicated neurology or stroke take. And so out of hours, uh, you're likely to have to escalate to an on-call consultant, and it may not necessarily be a stroke consultant that works in your hospital. So without further ado, let's get into calling stroke out of hours. We're going to start off with the very basics of stroke assessment. And we were talking just before the record about the number of acronyms that there are in strokes. We've got MCAs, ACAs, NIHSS, MRSs. So maybe if we can just start off by demystifying some of the many acronyms that there are within stroke medicine. Oh, absolutely. So I think it's one of those things, isn't it? It makes you uh, feel more clever than you are if you use a language that no one else understands. I think that's uh, one of the great professional attributes of, <laughs> of doctors in general, to be fair. Um, 
So obviously I won't be able to cover all the acronyms, but I guess it's just being aware, I guess, with, with vessels. So we often, especially when we're talking about a obstruction of that vessel, we call it an LVO. Um, all the vessels, the names, we abbreviate to the middle cerebral artery will be MCA, et cetera, et cetera. So there's, there's lots of acronyms there. I guess the ones uh, that are really important for MedReg and the assessment is to understand what all the referral criteria are and a lot of the acronyms and, um, and what they mean. So, for example, the NIHSS, which I'm hoping many people will be familiar with. And, and if not, there's some, there's some great videos. There's a really old American one, which is quite stuffy, but going through it, although a chore is very good. I would also recommend not just being able to do the assessment, but being able to do all the caveats. So I still keep on my phone the little section on the NIHSS that rather than just the score and what constitutes the different score is the actual description, because it becomes really difficult when someone's in very confused or very drowsy or comatose to remember which ones you score for if they're present but you don't score for if you can't test them and the ones that automatically get a high score if you can't test them. And, and I can never remember it. And I think it's worth just having that as a backup so that you are aware of those. And I think I probably won't spend much more on the NIHSS just to think about how would I score this in an unconscious or drowsy patient. So, you know, if looking at gaze, looking at visual threat for fields, you know, sort of almost going at them with your, with your hand assess for fields and things like that, and just making sure you, you're fully aware of all of those bits. Um, the MRS is a is a big one. It's rather regrettably so because it's evidence-based driven and inclusion and exclusion driven. And it is an important referral thing that we'll talk about a lot more when we're talking about thrombolysis and thrombectomy, but it's all essentially disability scale. Some people like to think of it as a frailty scale, which is not. It is a disability scale. And it's just making sure that you're very clear with the terms. So it's graded from, from one to five of those of us who, who are alive. There are very small jumps in the first three and then some very big jumps in the end two. And it's just being aware of where that cutoff is. So zero is just completely normally functioning person. One is having an impairment, but it doesn't actually impact your daily life in any way. Two is problems with jobs and hobbies. Three is problems with cleaning bills. Essentially, what the, the sort of gold question with that one is, could that person live for two weeks on their own with no one around them? And that's the sort of person who is eligible currently with the current referral criteria for thrombectomy. Um, so I guess they're the main sort of acronyms. I guess the other term that I think is often used in stroke, but maybe not understood widely outside of the, the stroke fraternity is penumbra. So penumbra we'll talk about a lot in the coming coming bits because it's all about stroke theory and all hyperacute treatment is all based on penumbra and core. And I think it's probably worth just at the beginning sort of talking a little bit about that so we understand what we're talking about when we're talking about penumbra. So penumbra the actual word means a shadow going across the sun, I think, in Latin. And I guess that's what's happening to the brain. So what we're talking about is death of the brain spreading across the brain. So I guess if you had a clot and there was no penumbra, you had a clot in a vessel, everything distal to that vessel would die. There would be no point in hyperacute stroke therapy. If you've got dead brain, there's no point in reperfusing it. It's not going to, it's just going to cause bleeding. It's not going to cause any improvement in symptoms it would be pointless. Penumbra is where we're talking about electrically failed brain, so causing symptoms, but not yet dead. So the difference between penumbra and core is that we've got this area that's fragile, that is causing a symptom of a stroke, but is still actually viable tissue. So that if we restore blood flow to that, the symptoms are reversible. Whereas core, we're talking about dead brain tissue. Now, I quite like, I don't know, I really like metaphors. For some people, it just makes things more confusing, but I really like them. Feel free to cut this out, Sam, if it's not too long. I like to think your brain is, say, a supermarket. Its main job is to dish out food to people, and it does that at a reliable rate, has plenty of food in stock, and everyone gets fed. That supermarket is at the end of a motorway. 
when that motorway, there's some horrible crash that happens on it, all of those delivery vans that are trying to restock that shop are interrupted. And as we said, if there was no protective mechanisms of the brain, that would just mean the shop would go out of business, your shop would be closed, it would be dead. But the body has a number of coping mechanisms. And what ends up happening is people use all the A roads and B roads to get round that blockage and get there. But that's much slower and it doesn't work as well. And there's a big chance of sort of traffic jams along that way. And it's a very fragile system. There's various ways that the brain and blood pressure all relate to try and push those vehicles through those small A roads and B roads, but it's not a viable thing. And eventually it's all going to get jammed up and it's all going to fail. And that supermarket's going to run out of business. And I guess what we're trying to get is that bit where the stock's low, there's problems on the road and we need to clear that crash away from the motorway. And that is the whole sort of theory around stroke medicine. And I guess that's what a lot of what we'll be talking about over the next um, few questions or so. Fantastic. And just to nip back to one thing, when you talked about the MRS, for those who want to go back and search that, it's the modified ranking scale, which is the description of a patient's uh, disability. Sam, I'll, I'll just I'll just um, say actually in terms of resources because the the actual if you do it on MedCalc and things, it's actually very brief with the actual description of what it is. If you go into the um, the SITSMOST registry, they actually give a very clear definition. I'm happy to send you a link if that's possible to do, but just actually what the criteria are. So in, I mean, it's a study tool. It's not really meant to be used clinically like we do now use it. It's a study tool for looking at severity of stroke. And I guess what we want to know is where that came from, and it's from the study. So if you look at that, it gives a nice clear summary of what those criteria are yeah fantastic you've already alluded to a couple of the things which are going to be really important when we assess these patients out of ours we're talking really about reperfusion therapy to the brain restoring that blood flow to the brain and so if we go in first we'll talk about thrombolysis first paul so starting from the very basics what actually is thrombolysis when we talk about it clinically and uh, we'll start off by talking about what patients are eligible to be considered for thrombolysis So thrombolysis is a tissue plasminogen activator. I don't actually know what that does other than it breaks down a bit of fibrin and and melts the clot away. And it's used in a number of scenarios in pulmonary embolism and stroke. We currently use alteplase commonly as the drug of choice at the moment, but there is a national shortage at the moment, and that is forcing us to use more now tenecteplase, which was probably on the cards anyway because it's a one-off shot rather than a uh, infusion. So there may be a shift over coming years that, like COVID, it pushed us to do something that we were kind of thinking about doing anyway. I think it's quite likely over the, the coming years we'll probably be using a lot more of tenecteplase. No difference, really. It's shown to be roughly about the same in various trials but the main benefit from it is it's just a one-off push rather than a push and a few infusion. The main thing that you're trying to do is melt away a clot to restore blood flow, and I guess that is the main outcome that you're trying to achieve after thrombolysis. And I guess the really important thing, which you've already alluded to, is is that it's a time-critical intervention. So for our patients who we are considering thrombolysis, the time-critical nature of it is pretty much, I would say, the biggest preclusion for offering patients Uh, who've had an ischemic stroke, this therapy. So Paul, when we talk about the time critical nature of thrombolysis, what time frame are we talking about for these patients? As you said, I mean, we need to evaluate anyone with acute neurological symptoms coming into hospital for thrombolysis because often the information is inaccurate. So often you get people who it's been six hours, but actually it's been a symptom an hour or two ago and now sort of full on symptoms with full resolution beforehand. But our main thing is that we need to know when this person was well, when the symptoms happened, and we can give thrombolysis without any other advanced imaging up to 4.5 hours, so four and a half hours. And that's the time. And the, the, the time, I mean, I just can't emphasize enough how important this is. I mean, even looking at the studies comparing not three hours to three and four and a half hours, you know, you're halving efficacy just in those two brackets. The time is absolutely critical. And with that, 
comes this knowledge of when symptoms occurred. So waking up with symptoms, that is not the occurrence of the symptoms. That is when it's first realized. And it's a really important distinction when assessing getting handover from ambulance crew, because often they will be the only people who actually have spoken to a family member or been able to get any sort of collateral information uh, is trying to assess when the time of onset was versus time first noticed. And if the patient isn't able to give that information themselves, that is such critical information. Without that, you don't chance it because as you start going over four and a half hours without any advanced imaging, the benefits start dropping dramatically and the the risk of hemorrhage starts increasing dramatically so that they are absolutes. And we can talk about some of the contraindications, which are a lot more flexible but the, the time frame without any other further imaging with just your plain CT is, is four and a half hours. Yeah. And one thing that I've definitely found during my own on-calls is that getting a good history, particularly from the paramedics, is, is really important. And that's if you don't have a family member present, which often you don't. But as Paul says, getting an accurate and rapid history of the onset of symptoms can't be understated here. So, Paul, we, the other thing which we ought to talk about before we come on to um, the procedure itself of giving thrombolysis is the assessment. So usually the NIHSS score is, is required when we're assessing these patients. So what sort of scores are we going to be looking out for? Or what's the cutoff for the NIHSS when we're, when we're assessing these patients? Yeah. So I guess I guess the first bit is the sort of rapid, I mean, people do it in different orders based on where the patient is on the way to the scanner. So there's no sort of set order. We don't have to necessarily do history examination, CT in the in the sort of, it's just grabbing whatever you can, whenever you can. So the collateral, when the, the ambulance are there, asking the patient a couple of questions, possibly doing some of the NIHSS while they're in, going into the scanner and then coming out of the scanner. But I guess from the history, what you want is, as we've said, that clear onset time. That has to be crystal clear. There needs to be no doubt about it. You just want to know anything else that's happened, any major, other major illness, anything that would be contraindications, uh, so significant headaches, subarachnoid-hemorrhage-like symptoms. You can go into sort of migraine symptoms or seizures, but they wouldn't necessarily stop you thrombolizing, but would be important in that decision-making process. But the history is usually around sort of two or three minutes, five at tops, because you're just trying to get the broad things. With the NIHSS, you will be going through your score. And at the end, if they score four or more, those people, you should be strongly considering thrombolysis if they are in that four and a half hour marker. It's probably also worth saying at this stage that there's some caveats to that. So what we're talking about, the reason why four was chosen is it was considered that this would be more likely to be a disabling stroke. However, the way the NIHSS is set up, you can have severely disabling symptoms that don't quite reach that threshold of four on the on the NIHSS scale. Examples of these are things like hemianopia, uh, severe aphasia or severe neglect, which may only score sort of two to three, but would still be a thrombolizable deficit. The slight difficulty with this is it's slightly contextual, because I guess what you're also wanting to know is what this person's prior function and how disabling that disabling symptom is going to be. So things like hemianopia, you're usually talking about possibly a more large vessel occlusion than maybe cognitive area things involved in there as well. If you're just picking off speech or just picking off uh, neglect, we're talking about a, usually a lot more distal clot or a well-compensated large vessel occlusion. So we've just got to be clear about where they are in the context of other comorbidities, illness that we call that a disabling symptom. So I think that's an important thing to think about is the context of that disabling symptom before necessarily just saying aphasia, you thrombolize all the time or hemianopia, you thrombolize all the time. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a couple of things which I thought particularly important to mention here. And this is the, the common pitfalls that you might encounter when you're assessing these patients. And there's a few things which uh, may become relevant when you're assessing these patients. So I thought maybe, Paul, we'll just do a bit of a quick fire run through some of these 
the first thing I thought is patients who have had strokes in the past and they have existing neurology from previous strokes and you're in a position where you're facing what is new neurology versus what is pre-existing. I mean, my suggestion, you can uh, confirm or refute it, is is just basically getting an idea of what actually was their baseline and how much of a additional deficit do they have from that. Yeah, so this does become really problematic, actually, for, for a number of reasons. So firstly, when you're scoring on an NIHSS and you've got a the problem which is making you score on that NIHSS, should it be counted, I guess, is one thing that we could be saying. And I guess if we go back to that, is it severely disabling if it is additional to the problem that they had and is resulting in an NIHSS over four and therefore likely disabling, then it probably is a relevant thrombolizable lesion. So I guess it's not just about the extra score, although you do need to take that into consideration. It's also about what that means as a whole for that person. The bigger challenge is decompensation of old stroke symptoms. And I think that's what you were alluding to there. And and that can be particularly difficult and comes down to our usually poor discharge summary um, documentation as well, because essentially what you need to know is what symptoms they had from their original stroke. You need to know that there's a definite causative factor that has made them worse. So I guess if we take that scenario first, you will never pick up extra neurology that you never had initially. So a decompensation of stroke is the symptoms that you had that are worse after recovery, not, say, picking up an extra hemianopia or picking up a new speech deficit that you didn't have with your right-sided weakness before. So even if it makes territorial sense, you can't pick up new neurology from decompensation. It is worsening of those symptoms so if there is extra bits, that is considered a, a new stroke, whereas the challenge is trying to find, and before you're speaking to the stroke consultant, obviously these are time-critical situations, so if you can't find it, don't go digging for half an hour on various electronic records. But what you really need to try and find is not necessarily what happened during the admission, but what did they present with with their stroke, whether the patient might know that or it might be written down on any sort of electronic records you need to know. And often they'll have an NIHSS form which you can compare it to. And if it's looking very similar, that does raise alarm bells about whether that person should be for thrombolysis or not. But what you also need is a clear thing that's decompensating and you're going to have to make that call clinically without any of the gloods or anything back yet. But if it's exactly the same symptoms, that's certainly something that you should consider. I guess the converse of that is you're saying a clot has gone up exactly the same motorway to the exact same area of the brain and knocking off another bit of brain side of that that was being used as sort of compensation for the original deficit, which is certainly possible. And I've definitely seen that happen. And I've definitely made that call wrong in the past. But I think when armed with the knowledge, you're a lot more likely to make a better decision. I think that should be the the goal there is. And especially if you've got anyone else who is able to do that for you whilst you're assessing, that will greatly help your decision making at the end of it or the person who's on the end of the phone or whoever you're referring to, they will need to know that information to make a a clear decision on that. Yeah, fantastic. And I I know that I've found that really difficult myself when managing these types of patients is trying to figure out what's new, what's decompensated stroke symptoms and what what in fact is new. Uh, And so the second thing I thought would be interesting to approach is possible seizure activity. And I know we'll probably come on to this when we talk about the contraindications to thrombolysis, but uh, seizure activity is one thing which I think is worthy of discussion because we know that tosparesis, we, we talked about in the previous hemiparesis episode, but the, the presentation of a seizure at the onset of stroke doesn't necessarily mean that the patient shouldn't be for thrombolysis, but it should be considered again, Paul. Is that right? I think this is one of those things that if you ask different people, you get a different answer. Again, it's looking at the context of it. So the most common cause of a seizure in someone who has never had seizures once you start getting over 50 is a stroke. So, you know, the, the converse is also true that, you know, the seizure can be masquerading your actual problem, which is a stroke, whether it's totsparesis or not. So I think where it's clearly a contraindication is if they're so unconscious from 
their seizure, as in they're so postictal that you cannot assess whether there is any neurology or not. I think at that point, it's the same with intubated patients. It becomes very challenging to say whether there's a disabling deficit, whether there is actually a neurological deficit. And I think that's where you probably would not consider thrombolysis, i.e. that person's GCS of six because they're post-seizure. The more challenging one is, like you said, they're waking up and they've got a clear neurological deficit. And I think the thing to remember is a normal brain has low risk of complications. So as long as there is no other problem that is going to bleed throughout their body, someone with a significant paresis, especially if there was a hint of it before the seizure, they're not known to have seizures and this is just part of their seizure symptomology, then you would probably thrombolize that person. Or that's my own practice. But I think if you ask different stroke consultants, they would say a different thing about that that context. And it's the same with migraine. So migraine is almost exactly the same argument that migraine can give very similar symptoms to stroke. It tends to be slightly different that it's migratory and that you get this sort of sensory migranous creep beforehand, but it's not always that. It can just appear like a stroke. However, migraine is also a risk factor for stroke, and it's a risk factor, especially migraine with aura. You know, it is a strong risk factor for stroke. So if they are behaving like a stroke and they've never had these symptoms before, unless it's quite minor, the consensus is that they probably should be thrombolized because the risk is very low and the potential gain is relatively high and not doing it is a missed opportunity. So it's it's very challenging and I don't think there's a, necessarily a right answer or a wrong answer. And it's also, if possible, talking it through with the patient and being clear and overt and open with your uncertainty. And I think that's important. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned there about thrombolysis being relatively low risk in young patients or, or patients at least with normal brains. I guess some of the things that is important to discuss with our patients when we consider thrombolizing them are the risks associated considering the fact that they may have had a stroke. So what are the usual things that you will routinely talk to your patients about before you consider thrombolizing them when you talk to them about the risks of the, of the treatment? The main thing is bleeding and... Bleeding happens in bigger strokes, and the longer a stroke's been there, the higher the chance of bleeding. One of the funny things with the studies, so as we went through stroke history, sort of through the NINs and ECAS trials and IST3, all the sort of landmark trials, they sort of started to change how they defined hemorrhage. So it started off as a very loose, broad definition with a sort of 5 to 6% Uh, risk of hemorrhagic transformation and then got tighter and tighter as the trials went forward so that actually that reduced down to two percent i don't think it was that the alta plays became safer it's just that we changed the definition of what a symptomatic hemorrhage was but so i mean your main your main thing that you're talking them through is that the risk of hemorrhage and again it comes down to these timings that when you're in that naught to three hours you've got sort of an, an absolute benefit of around sort of 10 to 13% with thrombolysis. So there's a good sort of one in 10 chance you're going to have a good outcome from this thrombolysis with a two to 5% risk of hemorrhagic transformation. So there's a good chance you're going to improve and a small chance you're going to get worse. Overall, mortality isn't affected. However, when you start getting, you start talking to people in the three to four to 4.5 hours, those risks and benefits start to become a lot more blurry. So you're then talking about seven percent absolute benefit versus that three to five, two to five, three to five percent risk of hemorrhagic transformation. So your risk and benefit starts to become almost equal. And I guess it doesn't take much else in terms of age, diabetes, very large strokes, those other things that in that particular category of three to four and a half hours that start to mean that the risks start to outweigh the benefits. So the American guidelines are a bit stricter than ours. So in theirs, they use over 80 as a a relative contraindication in that three to four and a half hours. And I don't think in the UK, we necessarily do that. I mean, there isn't actually clear evidence that it benefits that group in that time frame. So it does in the zero to three hours, but not necessarily in the three to 4.5 but you only need a few extra bits to make 
those risks when they're already quite close to benefits start to outweigh things. And as I say, those main things are large stroke, uncontrolled diabetes and, and age. Those sort of three things start to, when you start talking about those later thrombolysis patients, start to add up. Yeah, brilliant. And I guess one of the things that is additionally important, as well as the time frame in particular, is the presence of any contraindications with thrombolysis. And this is where taking a rapid history and making sure you're covering all your bases is really important. Now, it's going to probably take too long for us to talk through every single absolute and relative contraindication. So maybe, Paul, if you can just mention maybe the top four to five, and then we can rattle through the rest. So I guess I guess it's just knowing what's flexible and what isn't, isn't it? So things like bleeding, obviously you can't thrombolize them. So we won't go into those because there's no debate around that. If you've got a hemorrhage on the brain or you've got a surgical site or you've got recent bleeding, you can't you can't thrombolize. Things like intracerebral hemorrhage is listed as an absolute contraindication. I think that's just worth picking apart a little bit. So the difference between a traumatic intracerebral hemorrhage that happened many years ago versus a spontaneous intracerebral hemorrhage that was a peripheral intracerebral hemorrhage versus a central in spontaneous intracerebral hemorrhage, you know, they're completely different categories of risk. You know, the traumatic one has a low risk of rebleeding, the central one has a medium risk of rebleeding, the peripheral one may have a lot higher risk of rebleeding. So it's it's about again knowing once you've got that, not just ticking it off as an absolute contraindication, you need to know a little bit more about that and how it was managed. Same with things like AVMs or aneurysms. If they've been clipped and stabilized, there could be an argument to say, although they've had that in cerebral hemorrhage, if that was many years ago and that has been secured, then actually that risk is not ongoing. So it's one of those ones that's listed as an absolute, but actually does have a number of gray lines in amongst it. And out of hours, that becomes a bit more tricky. But I guess when we're talking about speaking to an on-call consultant, they're the sort of things that you need to know about that intracerebral hemorrhage, not just a yes-no sort of binary thing. Age is another one that we did discuss. So I guess it's it's just having that realisation that the, the IST3 trial sort of looked, I mean, it was such a brilliant trial. I love that trial. It was just essentially all the stuff before that we'd excluded from thrombolysis trials Let's put it all in this trial and see if it still works. (laughs) So it was all like the big strokes, the later strokes, the older strokes. And I think it was mainly a negative trial. So it sort of didn't maybe receive the attention that it it maybe deserved. But I guess one of the, the big things is that the older population stand as much, you know, there's no extra risk with the older population, but their benefit is attenuated once you start getting into that bit where we were talking, where that three to four and a half hours, that attenuated benefit starts to then become completely balanced with risk. And you're talking about one in, one out sort of category where that becomes a tricky decision. And as I say, it's the other things like uncontrolled diabetes. So if you've got very high blood sugars, it's a bit chicken and egg with high blood sugars. We don't know if it's blood sugar making the brain more bleedy or not able to recover as well. Or if it's actually the brain is just so injured that it's causing the blood sugar to go up, it's a bit, we we don't really know. With the really large strokes, if your thrombolysis doesn't work, you've then got a huge area of tissue that is going to be at much high risk of bleeding. So again, it's just those, that balance of risk starts to come down. So they're all relative. And I guess it's how much of those relative risks you accumulate to whether you proceed to go forwards. I mean, I won't spend a long time on this again because it's ask a different person, get a different answer. Is pregnancy is probably worth just covering. So I think possibly it's the biggest heart sink that you could possibly get as a medical reg uh, being called to a thrombolysis call in a in a pregnant patient. It still is for me as a as a stroke consultant. It's really hard, the decision-making, because we have no data. Obviously, there was no pregnant people in any of our landmark trials for thrombolysis, so we have no idea. There is potential benefit, and I think when you're talking about PE, there's a lot more potential benefit and potential benefit for the fetus, so it's an easier decision to make. When we're talking about stroke, the stroke may not in and itself cause harm to the fetus, especially if it's a smaller stroke. So where do we go? So we have some evidence from if you accumulate all the indications for thrombolysis 
that can be used in pregnancy, stroke, PE. There's a number of other ones. We've got a portion of about 200 patients in total. And what we know is that there is a risk to the fetus. There is a risk of bleeding. We get this sort of mantra from the obstetric consultants is treat the mother, not baby. And I think that's important, but it's important counselling with the patient that, you know, this risk is there. There is a risk of miscarriage. There is a risk of, of preterm birth. There is a risk of fetal death. However, that has to be balanced with how and well you may be from this stroke. What you have to hope for is that you see a large vessel occlusion that you can ask your friendly interventional radiologist to take out and you don't need to make that decision, but it is a potentially challenging one. And I guess I'm talking now, I guess, as a stroke doctor trying to make those decisions. I guess what you need to do as the person on the ground is get the obstetric team over as soon as you can so that that can be a joint decision making. So it's a time critical thing that needs to be made quickly. And as you're phoning that consultant, you need to know about all of the obstetric history and bleeding risk before you can ever make that decision. I mean, I would say I think you're underselling it slightly by calling it potentially challenging. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's really hard. But I I don't think so. The very small cohort of case series we have with stroke, there were no serious complications to mother or fetus. As a medical reg, you need the obstetric history and you're going to have to counsel that mother on a very challenging problem. I've got one more for you, Paul, which is probably relatively common for uh, most of the listeners. Patient who is anticoagulated for some other reason, they might have atrial fibrillation, they might be on warfarin for a metallic heart valve, something like that. How do we uh, treat these patients in the context of an acute stroke? Because my thought would be anticoagulation should reduce the risk of having a stroke. But, you know, we do see patients who have stroke-like symptoms who are already anticoagulated. So how do you approach those types of patients? Well, I guess the first thing to say about that initial argument is your risk reduction. So if you're relative risk reduction of 60% with anticoagulation, there's still a good chance you're going to have a clot coming out from your anticoagulation. So it's definitely possible Again, there is slight differences in people on how they manage that. The guidelines currently are still fairly clear that we should not be reversing to thrombolize. There is debate around that. So we have a reversal agent now for dabigatran. There's obviously your reversal agents for warfarin, but we shouldn't be really using those to try and thrombolize someone. But I do know that is practice in some hospitals. And I think that you just have to phone your stroke consultant to feel what their view on that is. It's not my practice, because I think you're talking about quite a dangerous, you know, it still makes me nervous thrombolizing people. It's a fairly dangerous drug. And I think you've just, with but not amazing benefit. You know, one in 10, that's reasonable when you're talking about procedural stuff and you've got significant risk there. And if there's anything there making your risk much higher, you've got to really be careful about making sure that's the right treatment. The other slight controversy with this is the the guidance has changed slightly over the the lifetime of NOACs, that it used to be 24 hours post last dose of NOAC. ESC have recently, or not that recently, but have fairly recently changed that to 48 hours. A lot of hospital guidelines still say 24 hours. Again, it comes down to, to personal risk. It's We're talking about there may still be drug in the system at 48 hours. Do you want that around when you're giving a drug that could potentially cause someone to bleed? My own feeling is that if there is a big body of experts saying it should be 48 hours, I agree with them. But there's a lot of people who take 24 hours as the the last time. And I guess where that comes relevant to medical regs is some people feel more confident than others saying no to thrombolysis and not waking up the stroke doctor. But I guess it's just knowing that if you're saying, oh, I've read the ESC guidance, it says 48 hours, I won't bother them. Some people would thrombolize if it was last taken at 24 hours. So it's just not saying no to ones that, People do things differently in the in the different things. It's discussing it through and covering your own back. With that in mind, why don't we uh, start trying to discuss how, as the medical reg, we should frame our discussions when we're bringing the stroke consultant out of hours. 
as you say, it's a, it is a stressful thing to take the responsibility to do. And so sharing that with your uh, consultants on call, so you've got that senior decision maker to back up your your own suspicion that we think we're going to thrombolize our patients. So, Paul, when you're on call as the stroke consultant, what advice would you give to us as medical regis when ringing for help, for advice, in framing these discussions when we're asking for advice from the stroke consultant on call? So... I guess it's like when you're calling ICU, I think. Similar thing, where you need enough information, make sure they can make the decision, but you don't want to have spent an hour and a half obtaining that information because then it's too late. So I think as the medical reg, it's just learning that balance of you are definitely going to need facts. You can't just ring them up, say there's someone with a stroke, NIHS has of this, CT's clear, shall we go? You need to have gone through the process. So like we said at the beginning, time, 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 you need that time. And if there is any hesitancy about the time, the consultant will ask you to go and get that time clear because it is so important about whether there's any benefit or not or making any of those decisions. And again, it's just making sure that it's that differentiation between last seen well and first noticed. They are such different terms, you know, they're completely different And then you want to know the NIHSS, you want to know their prior function, you want to know the scan findings, you want to know their OBS and blood sugar level. And I'd say that's the main bits. The other bits are more so if they've got a relative contraindication, say, for example, they've got an aneurysm or they've got a previous cerebral hemorrhage, is you are going to need to find out a little bit more about that information. If they've had a previous stroke, you need to find out a little bit more about that information if they've had previous bleeding. So it becomes more challenging when it's like retinal bleeds and things like that. You may need to find out a bit more information about that. If it comes down to GI malignancy, GI hemorrhage, you are going to need to know what the diagnosis was because something like a a big oozing cancer that can't be treated is very different to some sort of telendictasia, which is gradually bringing down someone's HB and classed as a GI bleed. You know, they are different entities. The other thing I would say as a tip, if there is an MRI head on there at any point, I think it's worth just looking to what see what that report is. Because things like cerebral and amyloid angiopathy, we still don't really know what to do with cerebral am- amyloid angiopathy and thrombolysis, but that's an important thing to use when we're weighing up especially if it's not a clear-cut decision if there's something else that's going to stop us doing it that will add to that weight and again like we said if there's an old stroke we need to know what that is now the other thing that i ask and i don't know if this is universal but have you gone through the contraindication checklist so it's not trying to remember it i don't remember it in a critical thing i still do it with a bit of paper making sure i have asked or looked at all of those contraindications so that we know it's safe. Safety is the important thing, like timeouts before big surgery and things. It's just making sure you've gone through that that contraindication list. Regionally, it's different. And even locally, it's different about whether you need to wait for the report for the CT. Some places insist that you do. Some places say not. I would personally ring the consultant before the report is back if you have got all the information because many stroke consultants feel confident being able to call that scan about whether to thrombolize or or not. Maybe at this point we can just take a a slight detour because you mentioned a couple of things which are going to be important when managing these patients and one of those is blood pressure control and the other one is blood sugar control and this is something which I've encountered myself and it's the, the patient who is a suspected or candidate for thrombolysis and they end up having a high blood pressure, 190 over 120 or something like that. So what are your go-to therapies for managing uh, high blood pressure in the context of a potential thrombolysis candidate? I guess go back further. Do we actually have clear evidence that high blood pressure is a risk? We don't actually have loads of evidence that high blood pressure is a risk. So they're excluded from all the trials. So again, it's that absence of information rather than definite harm of information that the harm actually comes from all the the trials from thrombolysis in MIs so 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 way back when but equally if the blood pressure is high there is that theoretical risk so we need to manage that blood pressure 
I think it's really, really important, Sam, at this point as well, to differentiate between a thrombolizable stroke to a normal stroke. So the blood pressure is a protective mechanism when we were talking about that penumbra. So if we're talking about our A-roads again, if you don't cut that out at the beginning, our A-roads, you know, the, the, the blood pressure, they're setting that speed to go higher you know, you've lost all that auto regulation, all the drivers who would have normally, you know, the, the delivery trucks to our supermarket would have normally sped up. The, mo- the A roads are limiting that speed. They don't really know what's what's happening. And all the auto regulation is gone. So your perfusion of brain is entirely dependent on your blood pressure. So it is a protective and normal response to a big clot. And you don't want to be bringing that down unless you have to. And the reason that you might have to is if you want to thrombolize. But that's a very different scenario if you're not thrombolizing. So I guess it's just having that very clear thing in your mind between I'm going to thrombolize, therefore I need to bring the blood pressure down versus this is an acute stroke. There was some guy who told me I needed to bring the blood pressure down. Don't bring the blood pressure down in a normal ischemic stroke. Uh, so in thrombolysis, we need it in safe limits or what is defined by our safe limits. There's various cocktails in, in, in various hospitals. I think a lot of the ones that we use are mainly about safety and what you recognize and are used to. So if there's a protocol there and people are used to using it, that's the one you should use, not whatever your personal preference is. It's more about familiarity with the drug and the complications. So labetalol is the most commonly used one, and that would usually be given as a couple of boluses, then an infusion. Usually, if you're just giving the boluses, you've got to think about the half-life of labetalol. It won't last for the full length of the thrombolysis. So if you've controlled it, then you might get blood pressure spikes. And certainly, if you think about in cerebral hemorrhage data, the, the up and down of blood pressure is almost as harmful as having an absolute high blood pressure. So once brought down, you, you want to try and keep it down. The main contraindications for that are high bradycardia. So that's the, the main thing. Interestingly, I don't know if in your cardiology experience it's the same, but I find that sometimes, especially maybe it's to do with the intracerebral pressure, a lot of people are close to that threshold for not giving labetalol at the sort of 60 beats a minute, say. Um, and actually with escalating doses of labetalol, they never seem to go underneath that. So I think it's worth bearing in mind and maybe sitting with people a bit more as you're giving those boluses of labetalol when they're nearing the threshold. But certainly in my experience, just anecdotally, sometimes that low threshold just seems to stay as a low threshold rather than just plummeting. Your second line is usually isoket, which has its advantages, but also big drawbacks. So obviously can't use it in aortic stenosis, et cetera, et cetera. But its main drawback is its tachyphylaxis, which is more important when we're talking about hypertension in terms of intracerebral hemorrhage, but is a, can be a significant problem. And the headache that's associated with that can be really difficult and result in multiple CT scans looking for hemorrhage and things like that. But essentially, you need to try and bring it down. You should be making reasonable efforts to bring it down. But if it's not working, it's not working and it's not safe and don't do it. And I think... Sometimes you see people ending up sort of going to ICU and things and then them having to be loaded on all kinds of weird and wonderful things that create all kinds of funny blood pressures. I guess the, the big point here is you're trying to give us a potentially dangerous treatment, comes back to this you know, benefit and harm that you're giving a potentially harmful medication. You need the safe environment to do that. If you can't do that with reasonable measures, then that's where you should call it a day. So moving on to the next thing, which hopefully won't take quite as long as blood pressure management is blood sugar management. I suppose it's going to be have to be taken on a case-by-case basis, depending on whether or not they're a patient with known diabetes, whether it's type 1 or type 2, whether or not they're diagnosed at all. I guess the first thing to say is that it's commonly found as, as a stress response to the acute illness, uh, and it may even be a... Uh, the first sign of a new diagnosis of diabetes. So how, how would you go about managing a patient with deranged blood sugars, Paul? Yeah. So again, I'm going to have to be a bit wishy-washy with this one, Sam, because there's no right answer to this either. So what we do know is high blood sugars are directly related to poor outcomes. But what we don't know is if it's the blood sugar or the brain causing the blood sugar, as we said earlier. So what we don't know is if bringing it down 
benefits people. What again, I think the main thing here is safety. So you want to make sure whatever you're doing is a safe thing to do. These people may well be nil by mouth. So a sliding scale is always your backup. But it's also perfectly reasonable to let it ride and see what happens or just give a short acting Nova Rapid to just take the edge off and see where it lands. But because obviously the stress response is highest right there at the beginning. Some people also just give a, a, a long acting low dose insulin to again it's sort of taking the edge off i don't think there's a right answer here i think my the med reg overnight with someone who's not eating and drinking the safest thing to do is always going to be a sliding scale my only caveat to that is if you i guess you're building up a, a bad picture of someone here who is almost destined to go wrong but if you are thrombolizing and you're on a labetalol infusion and you start giving a sliding scale what you're then potentially doing is giving a lot of dextrose to someone and we do see it in the cerebral hemorrhages that the labetalol infusions especially if they're needing high dose you start getting iatrogenic hyponatremia with it and i think it's just probably worth bearing in mind that the volumes of fluid especially once that blood sugar's come down is just keep an eye so on the higher doses of labetalol, you're not giving small amounts of dextrose on top of that. So certainly don't prescribe them extra fluids if they've got all those fluids going in from the sliding scale as well. And Paul, just finishing up with thrombolysis, one other uh, situation which comes up time and time again, we've mentioned it already, is wake-up strokes. And uh, you already mentioned that knowing the exact time of onset of symptoms is is critically important, but there has been some talk about an extended thrombolysis window for these patients. So what's your what's your take on wake-up strokes and what's important for our listeners to know with these patients? So I guess um, just to sort of break those two terms down, there's extended window and there's wake-up stroke and the evidence for those two things is slightly different. So the wake-up stroke stuff all comes down to trying to define by imaging criteria the time of onset rather than symptomology. So there's a strong thought that a wake-up stroke happens, you wake up with a stroke, stroke wakes you up. So we needed a way to prove that. Now in MRI, what we can do is if we compare T2 images to DWI images, so DWI being the bit where we usually see ischemia very clearly on an MRI, the DWI images, the stroke, which often dictates the core of the stroke, happen quite quickly, but the T2 take a little while to manifest, usually around the sort of four to six hour sort of mark. So here we're not working out penumbra. I think that's an important thing because the extended window, we're trying to work out penumbra. With wake-up strokes, we're just using a imaging modality to try and give us a good estimate of timing of when the stroke happened. So there is some studies with CT perfusion and even plain CT, but as far as I'm aware, they have not been very conclusive. But the wake-up stuff, mainly with MRI, is fairly robust evidence. It's been put through a meta-analysis. Again, it's not involving the old, over 80, the really big strokes. And they had an average of about three to four hours of noticing symptoms to receiving thrombolysis, which is quite quick when you factor in an MRI in the middle of that. And then the important thing for the med reg overnight is it needs an MRI. So if you can't get an MRI overnight in your hospital, you're not thrombolizing the wake-up stroke. It's usually a thing to think about during the day. So if for whatever reason you're assessing it without the stroke team there, it's in the day. It's something that needs to be considered. Or if it's very near the handover where they're coming in, it's worth making sure that they are aware of that when they come in. But it is not something for you to do overnight unless you are in an amazing hospital with overnight MRI and a radiologist who's prepared to report that T2 DWI mismatch. The other thing that probably just comes up, and I think sometimes the two get conflated, is we do have now an extended window of thrombolysis up to nine and a half hours with CT perfusion studying, which we'll talk a bit more about in the thrombectomy part of this. There was a number of trials in a meta-analysis, I think it came out about three years ago, that showed we can thrombolize in a much later window, again, with good patients, low MRS, fairly young, um, up to nine and a half hours, if we can show that there's a small core and large penumbra. 
I haven't seen in any of the centres I've spoken to or worked in is this manifesting as practice. It's not commonly done, but something just to be aware of that some centres may do and some of your listeners may work in a centre where there's a more clear protocol of that. But there is theoretically a thrombolizable strokes that can be done up to nine and a half hours. But that, again, would not be done overnight unless you have access to CT perfusion and people who are prepared to report that to dictate the safety of thrombolysis, which as far as I'm aware, wouldn't be any of the centres currently in the UK. Yeah, so I guess the take home really is, unless you're able to get this advanced imaging overnight, is you're not going to thrombolize the wake-up strokes as long as they're outside the four and a half hour window. Correct. As you have highlighted, it's in a lot of guidelines. So if you're reading a guideline, it can be really confusing when you come to it. So I think it's definitely worth mentioning uh, as what we might do during the day, but it's not a night problem. Yeah, exactly. And this is one thing where, from my own experience, as as the medical reg overnight, you'll often get the thrombolysis call, the, you know, the emergency call. Often the, or at least in my experience, the emergency department have said, well, they're outside the window, but they're a wake-up stroke, and that, you know, can we consider this? And I guess then it's taking responsibility, probably a, a degree of discussion with the ED team to actually say, you know, this isn't this isn't relevant here, and it, but it would be relevant during the day, I guess. Yeah, but also your job to check that history. You know, it's just a third person or second person to double check it is actually a wake up stroke. Stroke, not they've mobilised to the bathroom and then fallen on the way back. Now with a dense hemiparesis, you know, it's just making sure that history is wake up, not early onset. Yeah, absolutely. So definitely worth the thrombolysis call. I never get, you know, upset with the thrombolysis call. I think it's just, but you can often stand it down quite quickly if you confirm that is a wake up out of hours without MRI capabilities. So listeners, that brings us up to the end of another episode. I have to be honest at this point, Paul and I recorded this episode some months ago and since then there have been some new developments, namely a new national clinical guideline for stroke. So in a couple of weeks time you will get not only the second part of our chat about thrombectomy which we recorded at the time of this pre-recorded episode but you will also get an updated chat that Paul and I had more recently on the new national clinical guidelines for stroke in the UK where we have a chat looking closely at a few of the significant recommendations from the new and updated national guidelines. But listeners, that is just about all the time we have for this week's show. Please don't forget to like, follow, subscribe or leave a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We always love to hear from you, so give us a shout on our Twitter. It's at Prepaces Podcast. And if you really want to go above and beyond and support the show directly, you can do that at buymeacoffee.com slash podcast. But for now, we're just about out of time. Thank you so much for listening. I've been Dr. Sam Williams, and I will see you next time on the Pre-Paces Podcast.